So please turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark. I always have thought over the years it's the most neglected gospel of the four. Usually John gets most of the spotlight, I think. And then maybe Matthew. And then there's Mark and Luke. (laughs) And Luke's a lot of information, and Mark, we're not really sure why it exists, because it's the shortest one. But I hope you've been helped so far as we've journeyed through Mark. Uh, It is certainly my favorite gospel. Of course, that's because I'm in it right now. It might change if I was in a different gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 3. We're going to close the chapter out this morning. And Mark intends to demonstrate on a very fundamental level through his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, as we looked at last time. And we've seen there in his very first opening statement uh, that he doesn't uh, uh, conceal the identity of this man, Jesus. He tells us up front, he is the Son of God, meaning he is in the nature of God. He is God, very God. On top of demonstrating throughout the gospel that he is the Son of God, uh, he wants you to be his disciple, Jesus' own disciple. Uh, Yes, this, this is a gospel that saves Uh, But interestingly, uh, he's not so interested in a convert. He's interested in a disciple. He wants you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see this morning, the cost of being a follower of Jesus. Um, But I believe Mark has another purpose. Uh, Maybe you could say a multi-layered purpose in his gospel. And that is that Mark wants to disciple you. Uh, the way that he's arranged his gospel is, is not a focus on chronological events. We often think of the, the story of Jesus as just, here's the history of what happened, and there's a bunch of interesting, fascinating stories, and by the end we know what happens. He dies and he rises again. Mark has put all of these things together in order to disciple you. He has many, many purposes in discipleship through his gospel. We certainly see Jesus. We follow Jesus along the way. We learn from Jesus. We listen to what he says. We watch him at work. We follow what he does. And we are discipled, not just through Mark, we're discipled by Jesus himself. Are you being discipled in your life right now? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you have somebody who's been investing in you or who has in the past invested in you in some purposeful way. Well, if you're here on Sunday, you're being discipled by Mark himself, the assistant of Peter. God uses his word to mold us and to shape us. It's the tool by which we become more Christ-like. And Mark has some kind of direction in his gospel. If you're somebody who likes lots of order and organization and neatness and, and everything is laid out for you, that's not Mark. That's Matthew. Matthew, the first gospel of the New Testament, which is the bridge between the Old and the New Testament, he's very orderly. He has five sermon discourses, and then he has narratives between each of the five sermons, and he's going somewhere. Mark is all over the place, which I think is kind of like life. It's not so neat. It's messy. And Mark is, you hit the ground running in the first chapter. Uh, There's not a lot of transition for Mark. You're with Jesus you're on the road, and you're in a hurry. But I do think there's some direction. I I think Mark has a certain flow. Certainly there's a geographical flow to the gospel, 
after the first 13 verses of chapter 1, you begin Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And Jesus focuses there in Galilee uh, through the first 10 chapters. And then chapters 11 through 13 focus then in Judea, more in central Israel. And then chapters 14 through the end, 16, focus in Jerusalem, where Jesus suffers and he dies. I think Mark is, is much more interested than just simply a geography lesson. Um, so let me propose this outline to you, in case for those of you who love outlines. The first 13 verses of the gospel introduces to us the Son of God. And we've seen that introduction there. And then chapter 1, verse 14, through the middle of chapter 8, is Jesus' miraculous ministry and the question of his identity. So for eight chapters, you have uh, almost all of the miracles that Mark records are in the very first half of the gospel. And nobody knows who he is. It's a question of who he is, the question of his identity. And then in chapter 8, verse 31, through the end of chapter 10, is Jesus' mission and discipleship. So from the end of chapter 8 through chapter 10, he begins to focus on the disciples and his discipleship with them. And then finally, chapters 11 through 16 are his suffering and death. If you want even a more simple outline, something you can remember, because you're probably not going to remember all of that, it's broken in two sections. Chapters 1 through 8, verse 30, is his public ministry And the second half, chapter 8, verse 31 through the end, is his private ministry. And in the first half, nobody knows who he is. He has a public ministry, but everyone questions who he is and questions his identity. But in the second half, in his private ministry, he starts to tell the disciples who he is. And again, they're not going to get it. They're going to be confused and bewildered. But that's essentially where Mark has taken us. I like simple outlines. It's easy to remember. But along the way, you will be discipled. You're going to be discipled by Mark. You're going to be discipled by Jesus, the master discipler. And we're going to experience discipleship this morning. I've titled it a portrayal of the cost. Because we're going to see an example of the cost of being with Jesus, of following him. Mark wants us to know There is a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus himself is not above the cost. So earlier in chapter 1, verse 15, he was preaching the kingdom of God. And and there's a response to that kingdom. The response is repentance and faith. That is, turn from your sin and turn and trust in Christ. And to follow Jesus means to rely upon him, to trust in him rather than yourself. You no longer trust your own righteousness. Or you no longer trust a religious system as many in Israel did. Rather, you trust the person and work of Christ. And that is shown through faith and repentance. Will you follow Jesus even though it will cost you? Will Jesus reign supreme in your life? And we can only repent and believe by the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But Mark wants us to be on the dusty road that Jesus is traveling. 
And he wants us to experience what those people and those disciples experience, that they must repent, they must believe in him. And, and they must make a decision whether they will follow Jesus or not. At the very center of the gospel in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus will say this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the paradox of the Christian life. If you are interested in saving your life or finding your life, living for yourself, living for your own ambitions, or trying to earn your own standing before God, you will actually lose it. But if you come to the Lord and you lose your life, you realize you can't earn your righteousness. You give it over to Christ. You give over everything to him. You will actually end up finding your life. And to leave all in order to follow him you will gain much more than the world can ever offer. The cost is worth it, as we're going to see from Mark. But here we're going to be impressed with the fact that it's not just Jesus' disciples that experience a cost to following him. It's Jesus himself. And Jesus goes before us in experiencing the cost. So we pick up in chapter 3 and verse 20 this morning. And this is right after he's chosen the 12. Remember last Sunday? It's only been a week since last Sunday. To refresh your memory, he chose the 12, a group of nobodies with practically no potential in the world's eyes. These are the men you should not choose to start a kingdom or to do a massive three-year campaign or ministry. But he chooses them, and he chooses to mold them, and he's going to disciple them, and eventually they're going to be sent out, and they're going to glorify him. And you may not be part of the 12, there were only these 12 here, but if you've placed your faith in Christ, then you are his disciple. You are going to be discipled by Jesus every day of your life. And he will be glorified through you. So let me give you the two points up front. The cost is twofold this morning. Number one, Jesus' family attempts to dominate him. And secondly, Jesus' enemies attempt to discredit him. It's a simple narrative outline here. So Jesus' family, first of all, is going to seek to dominate him. And then we're going to see religious leaders from Jerusalem come in order to discredit him and his ministry. Immediately upon calling the 12, it's kind of like having a mountaintop experience, which they literally had on the mountain. It was a high He finally has chosen the 12. They're going to perform miracles, cast out demons. They're going to preach the gospel. This is really good. And you often know in your life when you're having a really good time, things are going well, there might be something around the corner, a trial, a difficulty. And sure enough, as he comes down from the mountain, he's going to experience severe testing. And the 12 aren't going to be directly opposed, but they're going to see their master opposed. And these two parties, his family and the religious leaders, are the very ones who should be for Jesus, right? If there's, if there's any two groups of all the people of Israel that should be for Jesus, they should be his own family members, should support him, and the religious leaders should support him because 
He is the living word of God. And yet we find these are the two groups who oppose Jesus rather than the rest of the crowds. It's a lesson to be learned. Sometimes the opposition you experience as a follower of Jesus will come from those you least expect. Let's look at the first one. Jesus' family attempts to dominate him. Mark records Jesus' mother and siblings arrive in order to seize him and bring him home. Verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And this is the beginning of this narrative. And you have to follow Mark. It's tricky. There's some twists and turns in his storytelling. So Mark records here his family. We later learn in verse 31, it's his mother and his brothers are here, likely his sisters too, in reference to what Jesus says. His family members, his real nuclear family arrive in order to seize him, in order to bring him home. Uh, and, And Mark tells this story in a sandwich style. And I'm not saying that because it's getting close to lunch, although you may be getting hungry. But this is an actual narrative technique where you have uh, what New Testament scholars call is a sandwich narrative. You have a story that's presented, and then that story is paused, and a new story is introduced. And once that second story is introduced, it's wrapped up and it's followed with a continuation of the first story, kind of like pausing a video and inserting a different story, almost like a commercial. But Mark has a purpose for it. And that's what he does here. Verses 20 through 21, his family has come. Uh, They think he's gone out of his mind. They come to get him. Notice verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. You see the the pause there of the narrative. It's like he uh, interjects this extra story in the midst of his family. And we're going to read the whole account in a moment. But this is called a sandwich technique or an ABA technique. There's a lot of hermeneutical information for you. But this is what Mark intends to do. Let's just read the whole narrative now. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. 
And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brother, my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Interesting passage here, isn't it? He had called the twelve, and they went home. This is not Nazareth that he has journeyed to. It's Capernaum. Capernaum is really Jesus' new home. It's kind of ministry headquarters. Uh, most think that he's actually staying at Peter's house, that a lot of their, their ministry came from uh, Capernaum and Peter's home there near the Sea of Galilee. And as they arrive with these new disciples, these disciples being called apostles, the crowds again gather around Jesus. I think if you probably feel claustrophobic as you read this gospel, you know, because there's always so many people around him. Uh, they want the attention of the miracle worker. And again, it's so oppressive. Notice earlier in verse 20, they, speaking of the disciples, could not even eat. It's a food theme this morning, from sandwich technique to not eating. They weren't able to even have lunch. That's how uh, overwhelming the ministry had become, how oppressive the crowds were. Remember, previously, he was about to be crushed, and so he had his disciples get a boat ready. Now, he is unable to even eat, which he must in order to have strength to do ministry. He's human after all. He's not Superman in the sense that we think he doesn't need to sleep and eat and he can keep moving. He must have strength. Jesus is, as we like to say of some people today or ourselves, we're crazy busy, right? How are you doing? I am crazy busy. Well, Jesus was crazy busy, and his family thinks he's not only crazy busy, but he's crazy. Verse 21, he is out of his mind. Mark records this, when his family heard it, and that means when they heard he was not eating, they deduced he's lost his mind. He's off his rocker. And, and here, he is out of his mind. This, this idea, this word is out of his mind. That is the idea of standing beside yourself. Sometimes we say, wow, he is beside himself. Literally, they thought Jesus is losing his mental faculties here. He's no longer thinking straight Interestingly, the Apostle Paul will be accused of this by Festus later in Acts 26. Festus tells Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You know, you're obsessed about this Jesus person. You've gone crazy, Paul. It's like some mad scientist working in their basement and they're working on a special project and they never come out to even eat because they're obsessed with what they're doing. It's more than just religious zeal. It's, he's gone too far. Uh, Jesus' family here thinks he's lost his mind. Now, they probably have good intentions. They love Jesus. Let's assume that. They've grown up together with his siblings. Interestingly here, Joseph is not mentioned. Uh, the last time we see Joseph is in Luke chapter 2 when uh, Jesus' parents go to find him. Remember, they, you know, they 
forget their child. You know, they, they leave the city and they leave Jesus behind. Um, and they come back and they find him and he's in the temple. And he's just amazing them with his knowledge. And that's the last time we hear of Joseph. Uh, most think Joseph likely passed away uh, sometime later. And Jesus likely, as the oldest son, had to step up and help Mary, help mom with the children and be a responsible young man. But Joseph is nowhere to be found. Mary would be left to raise at least seven children. Now, if you turn with me quickly to Mark chapter 6, the very beginning of Mark 6, you have the names of his brothers. Jesus' brothers here. Verse 3, James is mentioned first, who will end up writing the book of James. And Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? They seem to follow Jesus at times because they're concerned about him. But here are his siblings. These are the children Mary would have raised here. You have four brothers with Jesus. And then it says sisters, uh, plural. So we, we could assume at least two sisters, maybe more than that. So Jesus had at least six siblings. Mary had a lot on her hands without Joseph. And Jesus likely was that responsible man who stepped up as the older, oldest brother. And so he would have been a smart, impressive, responsible young man now in his early 30s, but now he has seemed to lost his gourd, as they say. He has lost his mind, so they think. I mean, after all, he's being identified as the Messiah. I don't know what, you know, what the brothers would think about that. Certainly he would have been an exceptional child, but maybe that's going too far. He's now calling disciples to himself and naming them and sending them out. Uh, masses of people are flocking to him. Uh, stories of him healing people. Uh, reports about him are going out everywhere. He is now the most famous man in Palestine. What's going on with our brother? But now Mary knows who he is, right? Because Gabriel had appeared to her and had told Mary who she would bore. And so she knew that. Now, it could be here, Mary isn't as concerned. She's just trying to control her children who are concerned about Jesus, if we kind of trust the best about Mary. But maybe Mary is convinced to some degree that Jesus is off course. Uh, As we're going to see through Mark, all the disciples seem confused about his whole calling and mission. It's not going the way we thought it would go for the Messiah. So maybe Mary's a little bit concerned as well. But they claim he has lost his sanity. After all, he gathered a motley group of men. He almost allowed himself to be crushed to death, and now he's not even eating. It could be he's missed so much, uh, missed so many meals, he's weak and frail. Now, maybe visibly you'd be concerned about him. Jesus, you need to take a break. You need to, you need to eat and restore yourself. Jesus needs some help, and we can help him. Well, Jesus needs no help. He's never off course. He's never misdirected. And he's certainly not out of his mind. In fact, what we see here is an amazing thing. Is Jesus is self-sacrificing. That's his nature. He is humble. He follows the will of God. As he's going to say later, his disciples are those who follow, who do the will of God. 
And he's a self-sacrificing leader, even to the point of neglecting himself and his health. The irony here is the great physician is so invested in healing and restoring others, he neglects his own health. Jesus is the self-sacrificing Savior of the world. There's nobody that's been like him. But unfortunately, Jesus' family fails to see this. They try to seize him. This word seize is the idea of arresting. This is a strong word here. They are literally, physically trying to restrain him and probably take him home, knock some sense into him, and then maybe things will be better. They, they seek to dominate Jesus in his mission. And although they may have good intentions, they unknowingly are now a tool of the enemy, a tool of Satan. Mark wants us to see this. In fact, it's almost like the picture they're trying to bind Jesus, the same idea, as Jesus will say, of, of someone stronger who comes in and binds the person. Satan uh, is to be bound by someone stronger. Well, his family is trying to bind Jesus to prevent him from doing the very thing God has called him to do, to preach the gospel, to heal many, and to give his life as a ransom. Well, as you're getting this story go- going, Mark pauses the story. You know, one of, one of the greatest frustrations as a kid is when we would watch movies and my dad would pause it because he wanted to give us a little lesson about something we just watched in the movie. It always frustrate us and my brother and sister so much. Looking back, I think there was a lot of wisdom to it. But Mark pauses it. And now he shifts the camera to the religious leaders, a group of leaders from Jerusalem who join in the opposition against Jesus. It's as he's in the midst of his family trying to steal him away. Now he has another group, the religious leaders, who oppose him. So Jesus' family has attempted to dominate him. And we already learned a lesson here. Sometimes resistance for following Jesus will come from those you least expect. They may even come from your own family who you love dearly. And that may be the cost you have to deal with. Here's part two. The second part of the story, Jesus' enemies attempt to discredit him. Jesus' enemies attempt to discredit him. It's just as Jesus' family is trying to seize him. Even later in verse 31, the crowd is telling him, hey, your mother, your siblings are here. Don't you know? They want your attention. You need to listen to them. As that's happening... We have a group of scribes that arrive from Jerusalem. Now look earlier with me, chapter 3, verse 6. Remember the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. It, It may be a connection to this verse. It may be that word went out at that point. It went back to the religious headquarters of Jerusalem. And now they are thinking through how can they derail Jesus from his ministry How can we uh, change his influence over the people? Or maybe they've just heard stories. Maybe this group of scribes have heard stories and they're just going to go try to discredit his ministry. Either way, they come to stop him. 
Notice their claim here. He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, and his power comes from Satan. And what they do is they don't actually go to Jesus. They've kind of thought through this. Their plan is they go directly to the people and they gossip and they slander Jesus' name to the people instead of going directly to our Lord. And they claim he is, our, our text here says, possessed by Beelzebul. Uh, there in verse 22. But reader, take note of this. They never deny the miracles. They don't come in town and say, oh, this is a bunch of hocus pocus. So-and-so really wasn't healed of leprosy earlier as we saw. Uh, The man with a withered hand still has a withered hand. No, they never deny the actual miracles. But what they do is they identify the source of his power to be Satan and not God. Amazing claim. His power comes from Satan, they say. And really, in the original, they're not even claiming he's possessed necessarily, but that he's a kind of sorcerer who uses evil power from Satan in order to perform the miracles that he's performing. A power from the one who is called Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies. One of my favorite books in Junior high. I wouldn't recommend reading it. Uh, Nothing to do with that book, The Lord of the Flies. This was an old name for a Canaanite god. Later used for Satan. And so what they're saying is that he works for Satan. He's an evil worker. Ben Witherton notes this. The function of such a charge was to discredit Jesus and distance the general populace from him. So this is their, their technique here is to tell the people who they think he is. And so the crowds will become convinced and they'll all leave Jesus. And he'll lose that influence he had. It's quite a smart tactic that they take. But what a claim, right? A religious group that comes into town and says, you work for the great serpent. So Jesus is either delusional or he's demonic of the charges. C.S. Lewis famously said this about Jesus. Quote, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Lewis says you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. End quote. You have to make a decision, right? Just as the people are. The people, the crowds have to make a decision. Is he, as Lewis would say, a liar? He knows he's not God. He's not who he claims to be, but he's just lying to the people. Or he's really a lunatic. He really is convinced he is, but he works for Satan. Or what's your other option you're left with? He really is who he says he is. 
He's the Lord. Is Jesus crazy? Is Jesus demonic? The reader must make the choice. The crowd must make the choice. Now, put ourselves in Jesus' sandals. It would certainly be hard to swallow if your own family came into town and accused you of being out of your mind. That would be a hard thing to swallow. But then on top of that, to have those who are the most religious, who should know the Torah, the Old Testament, the Word of God the most, would then accuse you of working for Satan. That would be a pretty low point in life. Really a point of discouragement. But this is part of what it means to be a disciple. There's going to be a cost. There's going to be resistance at times in your life if you associate yourself with a person of Jesus because that's what he experienced. And sometimes it will come from the unexpected, from those most precious to you or from the religious of all people. The scribes here, they're jealous of Jesus. I mean, he has the spotlight I can assume less and less people are going to the religious leaders now. They want to go to Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say, what he's preaching, what he's doing. And they have become jealous and envious of his influence. And so with a heart of envy, they slander his name to the crowds, accusing him of working for Satan in order to persuade the crowds away. They seek to discredit Jesus and his ministry. But notice what Jesus does, verse 23. And he called them, the religious leaders, to him. Wow, I mean, this is kind of bold. This is kind of like a theological okay corral duke out. What's going to happen now? Jesus wants to talk to them. And he calls them to himself. He deals directly with the slanderers. And he gives a rebuttal, although they didn't seem they wanted to argue with Jesus in the first place. We find in other gospel accounts, anyone who argues with Jesus always loses <laughs> and is embarrassed afterwards. Maybe that's the only place they had wisdom. But Jesus wants to respond to them with both simple logic and story, which even the text here says parables. So a simple question he asks, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's a pretty simple question. Jesus says it doesn't make any sense for Satan to resist Satan. If I'm really working for Jesus, why would I cast out demons and free people? That doesn't sound like the work of Satan. Why would I free people of demonic control if I actually work for the demon of demons? It doesn't make any logical sense. And the the funny thing here is Jesus has been accused of losing his mind, but he seems to be the only one using simple logic against the religious leaders. He uses good old-fashioned logic. He's not crazy. Who is crazy in the narrative? The religious leaders are crazy. And then Jesus uses story. You know, Jesus often uses parables, stories, in order to make points. He says, a kingdom that is divided will not stand. A house divided will not stand. If Satan is fighting himself, if there is, in a sense, a civil war in Satan's kingdom, well, his kingdom will not stand in the end. 
Again, it doesn't make sense that Satan would resist himself. And if demons are being cast out, and the religious establishment never denied that, it must not be the work of Satan. Verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods or steal his goods unless he does what first? He binds the strong man, then he may plunder his house. Jesus is making a point here. The only explanation of demons being overpowered is that there's someone here far greater, far more powerful, far more good than the demons. And that's the Son of God. Of course, they don't seem to get it, right? They don't understand. Instead of identifying Jesus as the Son of God, as Mark did, they identify him as a tool of Satan, as a worker of evil. It must be the work of God. This must be from someone far greater, more powerful than Satan. Who do you think he is, Mark wants to ask. How will you identify this man, Jesus? Jesus undoes the faulty illogical argument of the wise religious elite, as some might think. And it's Jesus that doesn't need counseling. It's the religious leaders that need counseling. Jesus is healing people. He's restoring people. He's freeing captives from harmful demonic bondage. He's only doing good. He's never doing evil. In no way does Jesus work for the enemy. And Jesus' rebuttal is not just to correct his opponents. It's to communicate something to the crowds. That he really does work for God. That he does follow the will of God and not Satan. And then it comes to its climax in verse 28 because Jesus issues a terrifying warning here. Truly I say to you, it's the first time this language is used here, truly I say to you in Mark. That's to get your attention. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal Sin. Jesus says, well, God forgives all sins with one exception. God will not forgive someone who identifies the work of Jesus as the work of Satan. For the one who sees the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works through Jesus in the Gospels, for you to see that and to make a judgment that it's not the work of God It is instead the work of the devil. He cannot be forgiven, right? Some have called this the unpartable sin. A question is often asked, can I commit the unpartable sin? Is is that a way for me? Can I commit that today? Likely this unpartable sin, as some may call it, was really only possible then. Standing in the presence of Jesus, hearing him, seeing him perform the miracles through the Holy Spirit, and then denying who he is, rejecting him, and accusing him of working for Satan? That certainly could not be forgiven. But it's certainly true. There is one sin, in a sense, that never can be forgiven. And that is the sin of rejecting Jesus as Savior. Jesus can forgive all sins, but he can't forgive the one who rejects the Savior himself. 
No one is granted entrance into the kingdom who rejects Christ. He is the door. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Christ. But friends, I often say this. When there is a warning in Scripture, there's often a promise next to it. Always keep your eye out for the promises that are near the warnings. And here we have a promise. And we should not miss it here. Notice, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That is an amazing statement. Right? All sins will be forgiven the children of man, including blasphemy. All sins except an outright rejection of Jesus can be forgiven. I love what J.C. Ryle says in his devotional commentary on Mark. He says, these words fall lightly on the ears of many persons. They see no particular beauty in them, but to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, those words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. The sins of youth and age, the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all, all may be forgiven, Ryle says. Ryle says the blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. End quote. I mean, this is a glorious statement here. All sins can be forgiven. Amen and amen, Pastor Ryle. As he says, to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness, deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are precious. Uh, The promise stands out as gold among Mark's narrative. All sins in your life can be forgiven if you look to Christ in Christ alone. Eternal life is not inherited from family. It's not granted by religious devotion. It's only by seeking the Savior himself. So we have a precious promise found amidst a frightful warning. And so Jesus rebukes the religious leaders, but the crowd would hear the great promise from Jesus. Well, Mark unpauses it, picks the story back up to end the story. What do we see? Verse 31, his mother and his brothers, they're still there, trying to get his attention. Standing outside, they sent to him and called to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. It's kind of like they're... they're kind of these pesty mosquitoes that we are experiencing right now. They're, just, they're still there, and they're, they're still trying to get his attention and, and distract him. And he answered them, Who are my, brother, my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Your mother and your brothers are outside, Jesus. Don't you know? You need to be loyal to your family. They're the most important thing in the world, right? Dare you cross your family and and offend them. And Jesus asked, who are 
my mother and my brothers. That may have not fell nicely on the ears of his family. I don't think he's intending to be rude to them, but he's stating something very important. Those sitting around him are his family, he says. Those who, have, who are following him, who listen to him, who want to do his will, who worship him. Those are the family of God. Those are the family of Jesus. Here are, he says, my mother and my brothers. Disciples of Jesus are his family. And he ends by saying, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying here? Simply this, those who are my true family are those who follow me. They are my disciples and he will give his life for them. Our obedience here, Jesus is not saying, our obedience is earning our salvation. Rather, those who are saved, those who are given new life, follow Jesus. They live a life of obedience unto Jesus because God has done a work in their heart. Well, Jesus still loves his family that have come to get him. Read at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and while he's suffering, he, he gives his mother over to John. He takes care of his mother while he hangs on the cross. He loves his family. Uh, he no doubt loves his family more than we'll ever love our family. He was the only perfect one to love his family, and yet it's clear those who are the eternal family are those in Christ, his disciples. And that's the story here. The disciples of Jesus don't resist Jesus. They follow him. They obey him, even in the face of opposition. So friends, the cost portrayed here is what Jesus himself undergoes. David Garland said, Jesus can call others to sacrifice because he too has had to sacrifice to follow God's call. Jesus was not above the cost. He not only told his disciples there will be a cost, he himself endured the cost, the cost of his own family opposing him, the cost of being slandered against by religious leaders. And he sets the example for us that we might follow in his footsteps. Mark wants us to learn from Jesus this morning as our example He wants us to see the cost Jesus himself experienced so that we might know what discipleship with Jesus means and we might have strength to continue when we do face opposition. Mark is discipling us and he will continue to do so. I end with this thought. Self-denial is part of what it means to be his disciple. And he does not ask us what he himself wasn't willing to do. The master is not above his student. And that is a leader to follow. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to follow you. We know there will be persecution for our faith in you. At times the cost might be heavy. It might come from those we least expect, maybe those who are most precious to us. But Lord Jesus, you have gone before us as our leader. 
and you were not above the cost. You endured the cost. You would endure the cross before us for the joy set before you. And Lord, you disciple us along the way. Lord, we want to be like your disciples. We want to sit at your feet. We want to listen to what you have to say in your word. We want to learn from you, and we want to worship you. May you be glorified as we follow you, we pray in your name. Amen.